Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Strangers on a train is over. It must be pretty exciting to be so important. Two fellows meet, like you and I. No connection between them whatsoever. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Fantastic, isn't it? You didn't know when Bruno proposed this pact that he was serious. Dead serious. You had made the mistake of speaking to a stranger on a train. And now, wherever you go, whatever you do, you find yourself dominated by his evil presence. And you, Bruno. To you, killing was the answer. Murder without clue, without motive. The perfect crime. Too perfect. And Anne. Life looked very attractive to you until the love in your heart became gripped by a terror that drew you deeper and deeper into this vortex of conspiracy. Oh, he's so good. Andy. I thought you were going to say, I certainly admire people who do things. (laughs) (laughs) It was. It was like uh, the other one is like a uh, uh, tennis player isn't important. <laughs> that felt like that might be too much of a dig on tennis players. 
<laughs> Strangers on a Train has a particularly low opinion of t- tennis players. That's right. They're so gullible. They'll do anything I for a lighter. You. I tell you. All right. Uh, let's start start our conversation about Robert Walker, though, because he is so creepy and so great in this film. And uh, like, I was looking at his filmography, and I hadn't seen anything else of his. Um, and I, you know, I was like kind of a little surprised, but then I realized then I was reading up on him and realized that he died like two months after this movie was released, and he had like a terrible, terrible time, and it was just a, a really sad, kind of sad, tragic life, you know. And when you look at his movies. I think there are like three or four that are under the IMDb six star rule. Like he, he makes, he's a guy who is in good movies and I'm right with you. I wanted to see everything that he did. I thought he, I thought he was extraordinarily charismatic on screen. I wanted to, I was just exuberant for his performance in this movie. Yeah. He apparently when he was younger, he was with uh, Jennifer Jones and they actually came out to Hollywood together. She ended up kind of doing a little better than him. And uh, she fell into the spell of, I can't remember, I, I think Selznick and ended up divorcing him. And that kind of broke him forever. Like he never quite was able to get kind of get through that and you know he ended up in a few other marriages and stuff but had a lot of drinking problems and you know never could quite pull himself together he ended up going to a clinic where he was treated uh, for psychiatric disorders then he got out and that's when he ended up in this film he shot one more film after this but never was able to actually go back and do any retakes because his housekeeper came in he was freaking out uh she called his psychiatrist who came and gave him like a sodium avatol shot without realizing that he had been drinking a bunch and all of the combination all of all that uh ended up killing him and he ended up dying at the young age of 32 just oh so God. tragic. So, so tragic. There are so many. It's just littered with tragedies, his bio. But the one, like, after his estranged wife went to Selznick, right? He then went in a movie, started a movie with her, a Selznick film, Since You Went Away, 1944. And that was the thing. It was like, oh, my God, no wonder. No wonder <laughs> he's actually acting in movies uh, where he's he's got to, to play the nice guy. I mean, gr- talk about strife struggle ugh, awful 32 years old yeah very very hard time so um very sad uh he really just is exceptional and so creepy as bruno bruno antony in this film this is one of uh, you know we haven't done a lot of hitchcock films i think this is what maybe our third or fourth uh, that we've discussed on the show. Uh, always fun to talk about Hitchcock, and this is certainly one of my favorites. So uh, where should we start? Should we start with cinematography? Probably. Yeah, I mean, that's why we're here. It's why we're here. Mm-hmm. The black and white cinematography nominated for this film, shot by Robert Burks. This is his first time working with Hitchcock, and they ended up working together for quite a while uh, after this, he ended up shooting with Hitchcock for uh, 14 years, I believe. I think he shot every Hitchcock film from this one up until Marnie in 64. The only one he didn't shoot was Psycho 
And so that's a hefty uh, series of Hitchcock uh, films. That's like a great window of films to be working on. And they just, they very much connected because the way that he, Burks, had worked with special effects in his own uh, past and had a good sense as to how to do special effect photography and then working with Hitchcock, like like he had done special effect photography from uh, the 30s into the 50s, in addition to also working as a cinematographer, like doing just specifically special effects photography, which is kind of a thing in and of itself. And so that was something that really appealed to Hitchcock, that this is a person who knew how to use the camera in creative ways to capture really interesting things. And I think it shows in this film, you know, aside from the fantastic well-constructed way that the film looks, there are also some great moments like the merry-go-round at the end, the shots like the the uh, murder through the lens of the glasses laying on the ground, a lot of those sorts of things that I, I think highlight a lot of the creativity that they came up with for this film. Those are giant glasses, right? That's a Hitchcock thing, right? Just make a giant prop and shoot it through that. That make that, it's got to be giant glasses. It was a whole thing, and I, I still don't fully, I can't picture exactly how it is in my head, but basically, they shot the murder on a sound stage. Then they had the actress, this was Kay, uh, Casey Rogers, who plays Miriam. Uh, they had her come back, and they did it again with through, they shot through this giant uh, concave reflector, and and I'm not exactly sure I fully understand how this worked because they shot just her through the reflector. And what Hitchcock had her do is he said, quote, float backwards all the way to the floor like you were doing the limbo. And so she had to kind of keep lowering herself very slowly down to the floor. And somehow then they, you know, just in their uh, editing, um, they were able to kind of um, put all these together in a way that that put that into the frame itself, but it's actually just a, uh, this concave shot that was done and just put into that space of a lens of glasses that they shot close up. I'm not saying anything, but if you look at my list of, or my recent photos, you'll see an awful lot of me trying to reproduce this shot with my phone. <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard to do. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> that macro lens makes it a little easier, but it's hard. Yeah. It's, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, I, it's extraordinary. And I think there are a number of shots that that are otherwise benign shots and sequences. But because of the way they are intercut, the cross-cutting between the tennis match and reaching for the lighter in the grate is one of the most intense sequences in this movie. I'm, it's like real edge of your seat stuff. And who cares about a lighter and great, but those fingers reaching, just barely touching it. Like talk about expertise in that nail biting filmmaking to be able to make both of those things so intense that, you know, cutting back to the tennis match where he keeps, you know, we keep tracking the score and the deuce and the love and the, deuce and back to deuce and it's just it, it's in, incredible just invigorating intense filmmaking uh, that you know out of context means nothing right they're just nothing these are not individually horrific thrilling sequences they're just made so by you know complete expertise and allegiance to the story it's fantastic i really just wanted to see a like a wide shot 
of Bruno with his arm through that little grate because he and uh, like, like fifty guys. <laughs> he, he had him. to like squeeze. Like I was like, how did he get his arm through that grate? Like he got it all the way down to the bottom. It was a fantastic sequence, but clearly one that works because of the close-ups. Like in reality, is that there's no way he was going to get his arm down there. It was very funny for sure. But um, yeah. but again, it speaks to the fact that we're buying into the story construct that Hitchcock is is weaving for us, and he is building the that tension. You know, we know because of the announcers that guy is playing more fiercely than he ever plays. And so we're seeing that we're feeling that tension of the game because he's got to get out of there. Like everything. It's a great, like ticking clock sequence. Both of them are racing against the clock to get to that amusement park uh, in time. One to plant the evidence, the other to stop him from planting the evidence. And it just, it plays so exceptionally because you really feel it. Like you can just feel in the editing style and in, in the performances, everything like is just amping up the heartbeat and making everything move that much faster. And that, of course, is the end of the movie. But we're, we we skip out the actual sort of titular sequence that these two are strangers on a train. And the act of following them through the station, getting out of their cars, leading to their conversation on the train, which I think sets up the really expertly sets up the fantasy sort of universe that we're living in. Like, like many of Hitchcock's, um, fair, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of, of just sort of social horror disbelief you have to wave. And yet this one, I'm, I'm right in it. Like their conversation, the way they are introduced to one another, the way I should say Bruno introduces himself to Guy, I am right in their relationship from the beginning. Do, do you have that same sort of experience with some of, of Hitchcock's stuff? The one that, that jumps out at me in this vein particular is the, I can't remember what it's called. It was the, like the gambler. Uh, we've talked about it a bit before with the, with the lighter and John Houston. It was one of his Hitchcock presents stories. Oh, yeah. um, that kind of reminds me of this sort of thing. Yeah. And that was John Houston in the, in the eighties re redone version of it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, with the lighter, and I always win in the end, showing all the cutoff fingers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was one of the the first Hitchcock things I'd ever seen. What? Say that again? Man from the South. The Man from the South? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Great episode. Super creepy. But yeah, I I lost track of what your actual question was, because I got so focused on that TV show. Because it was so good. It was so good. It was so creepy. Loved it. That's me. Just distraction. Just uh, bob and weave. Bob and weave. Uh, I think I was talking something about just introducing us to kind of the social horror fantastical universe that Hitchcock creates through this conversation uh, on this train. Well, and I think that's what's so interesting, you know, about Patricia Highsmith and her writing, because this was based on her first novel, and just coming up with this idea of swapping murders, which on the surface seems so logical when you take when you take the whole idea of murder out just the concept seems like well yeah it makes perfect sense i can see why that would work you know there's nothing about it that i mean it that, it wouldn't work for like just for example it wouldn't work for you and me no right i mean yeah, right because we we're not strangers other. we know yeah, people would strangers. see we're not strangers unless <laughs> but that's the whole thing and that's what's uh, i i think to your point is really interesting about the the setup of this film is you know, you have 
Bruno, as disturbed and as disturbing as he is, is very charismatic, is kind of a conversationalist and has this easygoing conversation with Guy, although is dropping some creepy things in from time to time, kind of letting us see exactly how broken he is. And we, we're starting to get that sense. And even Guy is, by the time he's uh, leaving from uh, Bruno's cabin, is agreeing with Bruno, like, yeah, yeah, sure, but in a very sarcastic way. But we can see Bruno does not recognize the sarcasm with which Guy is responding when Guy says, when Bruno's like, yeah, but we, but we're good. We're like, we're, you agree with me, right? This is good. We're, the plan works, right? And Guy's like, yeah, yeah, sure, Bruno, whatever you say. It's interesting. And, I, you know, especially on the heels of talking about a place in the sun, I was thinking about this. I'm like, how much is there in Guy where he kind of also wishes that it could be, you know, and in a way is complicit in the murder of his wife because he does recognize that there is this crazy in Bruno and is kind of dismissing it, but only half-heartedly so. Right. And that's the whole point, because that they establish just how right Bruno is in the context of Guy's relationship in one scene, one scene. And we see how awful uh, Guy's wife is. And we want her dead, too. That's the (laughs) that's the magic of this movie is they get us on Bruno's side from the jump. And I think that is magical, magical that I'm already on team murder. I don't care how else it it works out, but I'm on team murder right away. That is very Hitchcock. I I haven't read Patricia Highsmith's novel, so I can't speak. I know that there were certainly some character changes, like in the book, Guy was an architect, not a tennis player. And and so there was definitely some some change to overall structure. But I I believe that there was some deeper changes as well. But without having read it, I can't speak to it. But certainly here, it feels very Hitchcockian. You know, we have the sequence between Guy and Miriam in the record shop where she works. And we recognize that she is uh, kind of this money-grubbing evil woman who is uh has is she's pregnant with another man's baby but is going to accuse or tell everybody that it's it's guys and is going to stay with him because of the money and like she's a terrible person and yeah we absolutely agree when guy is screaming into the phone shortly after that to to Anne his girlfriend that he wants to strangle her <laughs> we totally yeah we do too yeah we do too yeah. And I love in the music in the music store when they're in the listening booth and he's like he's starting to get physical with her. And like at that point, I just want him to reach over and take the money back. Like, let's just resolve that. But the old man opens the door and he's like, this isn't the place to settle family squabbles. As if to say you could go like beat each other up at home. Don't do it at the store, which is I guess that's par for the course in 1950. <laughs> Maybe yeah, that's sadly. It, it is really sad, like a sad testament that that's the solution that he comes up with because it's not good. But man, she does make it. She makes it hard to to be on team 
wife. Well, even when she goes to the amusement park and Bruno follows her and we have the whole murder and everything, she's, <laughs> she's there with, with two, two guys. Dudes. Two guys. I know. <laughs> like, what a floozy. Like, it is such an really interesting... Really leaning in. Yeah, what an interesting portrayal of this character and just so many ways to make us hate her. And not only is she with two guys, but she starts flirting with Bruno. <laughs> Like he, you know, he's standing next to her and she, he's singing along with them as they're riding the merry-go-round and she's giving eyes to him all the time. Like she's no longer afraid of this person who's following her. She sees him as yet another conquest and is just kind of eyeing him all the time. And, and to the point that that's what he uses to kind of, uh, you know, lure her in, so to speak, when he, right before he strangles her. Just incredibly clever. And what's interesting with all of that is there's also kind of this homoerotic undertext between uh, Guy and Bruno that apparently Hitchcock was pretty keen on weaving into the story because at the time there was the House of Un-American Activities Committee and everything. They were looking at different people who had been thought to be gay or whatever, and communism and homosexuality, it was all being tied together. And so Hitchcock really wanted to kind of create this tension between these two that also certainly comes across from uh, from Bruno's perspective. You know, the first time we see him at home, his mom is giving him a manicure. He's always like dressed up in the fanciest of clothes. And there is this side to him that seems like, you know, is Hitchcock also painting this whole idea of something else going on here? And what is he saying about, uh, you know, people like Guy who just look completely normal, but but are they? And and I don't know. It was a really interesting additional element that, honestly, I never really thought about with this film until reading up on it. And I was like, this, it's very interesting. And certainly, you can see it when you see how Bruno is portrayed. Yeah. Right. And I thought that was actually really interesting. This, the first time we go back to his house and his mother is giving him a manicure, <laughs> um, which, which is, is really interesting. What they created in Bruno is like a classic dandy character wearing the silk, uh, you know, sort of robe and, um, you know, just the way he smokes, the way he walks, which is entirely different than the the sort of persona he cuts on the train. Right. He is a, a much more sort of uptight suited guy in in terms of his the the sort of mechanic of his manipulation that makes total sense right he wants to look like who he's talking to but that's where this movie which uses all kinds of visual and narrative uh, metaphor for crisscrossing not just the crisscrossing of the murders but my goodness the train tracks and the stairs and all kinds of things are crossing um, that we start with uh, with them looking the same and then diverge wildly as as we see more and more about Bruno's home life. It was just uh, it, a perfect storytelling for that character. Learning more about Bruno through his mother and through the relationship he has with his mother and that house, that extraordinary house, was was really perfect. I, I don't know what I would have expected from Guy uh, as the famous tennis star. Um, but they definitely captured the weird in Bruno. Yeah, the uh, very peculiar character, always walking around when he's at home, like he always has his silk robe on. It's it's an interesting like portrayal of 
the la- not lazy rich, but certainly the bored rich who has nothing better to do. And I think there's an interesting element to his conversation at the beginning that certainly leans in on all this where he's just like, I want to try everything. And it's like, okay, yeah, he's talking about, you know, uh, driving blindfolded and all this sort of stuff. But I think in all of that, like once you start seeing it through these goggles, you can see, okay, it's also like there's some homosexual uh, subtext there as well. Like it sounds like this was something added in that wasn't necessarily in Patricia Highsmith's novel, which is interesting because it certainly feels like something that Highsmith explores in other books of hers. It makes me want to watch a lot more Hitchcock movies again, like right in a row, because it feels to me like that's something that Hitchcock is interested in toying with in terms of um, narratives that he finds interesting, you know, playing these sorts of tropes against one another in unique ways. I really appreciated it in this watch. Yeah, for sure. We haven't really talked about Farley Granger a whole lot. He plays Guy Haynes. He had been in Rope. Already, uh, you know, somebody who had performed in uh, with Hitchcock and uh, an interesting actor who I think just he has a great look. And it's, you know, interestingly, I think just I, I don't know how much it was planned, but, you know, as somebody who was bisexual and closeted at the time certainly ties into everything we we're just talking about. Right. I say that I don't know how, how planned it was because he wasn't the first choice. I think it was William Holden that uh, Hitchcock had originally wanted for the part. But I, I really enjoy watching Farley Granger on screen. I think he's an interesting actor. I don't know if I've seen a ton of his stuff, uh, like They Live by Night, Rope, and this. That may be it. Are, are you, have you seen much of his work? I, I mean, his, I, I don't want to say he was new to me. I'm like you. I mean, I've I've seen a couple of things, but certainly not as a student of Farley Granger's catalog. I he's he, he's of an era that you know. I saw the big. I saw the big hits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think even of his top four, I haven't seen The Prowler. Um, and and you caught the other ones. They live by night. Strangers on a train and rope. Yeah. Oh, and I'm I'm sure I saw him in Murder She Wrote in 1990. He did one episode. The Prowler is one that I'm like, is that something that I caught on TV ages ago? It's possible, but uh, I'm not, I can't speak for sure. <gasps> Andy. What? We have urgent news from the front lines. Farley Granger was in 56 episodes of As the World Turns. I absolutely <laughs> saw Farley Granger on As the World Turns in that era and did not even know it between 96 or 86 and 88. That was peak summer soap viewing for pete that's hilarious i am sure i saw him i was a big uh, general hospital as the world turns guy <laughs> did not even know it extraordinary farley granger extraordinary he also uh, popped up in one life to live but how many episodes really 62 episodes in one life to live oh my god oh my god <laughs> i am shook i am shook Oh, so funny. So funny. Uh, okay. So, uh, but but certainly an interesting actor. And I think in this case, he works well. It, you know, it's interesting. There was a change from the book. And I actually want to chat with you about this to see what you think. Because this was something that my understanding from reading up on it is it was kind of one of those changes that was kind of forced upon them by the uh, by the production code and everything. But in the book, he actually does end up killing Bruno's dad. And that is, of course, changed. He walks in and 
you know, tries to talk to Bruno's dad only, of course, to have the light turn on. And lo and behold, it's Bruno laying there. I certainly have a question about that here in a little bit. But outside of that, like, does it work for you, the fact that it plays out this way? Or would you have preferred to see him feeling so trapped that he actually does go through with this murder? Oh, I wanted them to. I, I very much wanted him to kill his dad. Yeah. Very much. That that's like the ultimate in uh, you know the ultimate experience of entrapment, and I I needed I feel like I needed that to play out. I did not mind the way it 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 ended. Like I didn't object to to it, but because I, I think there is still a bit of a naughty ex, like explanation for entrapment. The whole thing about you know going back to drop the lighter as evidence felt you know as like the biggest reach of the film of a movie that doesn't reach for much. So I was okay with it, but I definitely wanted to see the murder happen. What about you? Uh, Well, and that's certainly something that I think would have, I mean, this is just, you know, it is absolutely one of my favorite Hitchcocks. I I think it is just such a fun film, but that's always a question I have there. I'm like, okay, what if he walked in and intended on following through and killing Bruno's dad and Bruno was lying there. I'm like, this was a really bad plan on Bruno's part. <laughs> like he's really a hundred percent counting on the fact that that guy is, is going to not do it. And I always question that. And it's one of those things that I'm like, yeah, but how, how does that work? I, I kind of would love to have seen guy in this place where he, he really does feel so trapped that the only answer he has is I have to kill this person. I just think that would have made a more compelling, really intriguing end as, you know, one of the things that he then also has to admit is that, yeah, I actually did go through with it and kill his dad. And it just it really speaks to a crazy, you know, psychological end to the story. I, I think so too. I was not uh, I was not particularly jarred by the fact that Bruno was in bed because I thought for me from as a character uh, trait, I think Bruno's like it's just another exploration of Bruno's extraordinary ego. Like that confidence that he knows guy isn't going to go through with it. I think had you been able to probe Bruno for this information, the moment guy left the train car in the opening sequence of the movie, he would have said, yeah, he's never going to do it. But that's okay because now I have an excuse to kill somebody who needs to be killed. Right. Like that was to me, that was the extension of his sociopathy. Uh, Bruno's sociopathy, that he was going to do the murder and and it was OK because he knew Bruno wasn't going to to do the thing. And that was that was the measure of his confidence. Well, I I don't know if I think that he walked out of that train car thinking that or believing that Guy wouldn't do it. I don't think I, I think he is convinced that Guy is going to do it um, and to, for quite a while, I think. It's not until several meetings later that he finally has his eyes open to the fact that, oh, I don't know if this guy is actually going to do it. Because every time he's meeting after that, he's pretty convinced. And it's always like, uh, it's. I just don't think he's quite seeing the realities of things just yet. But I do, I, I guess I, I agree with you in the long run. And certainly the film makes it that way where it's like Bruno realizes that he's never going to follow through with this act. And, um, and so, yeah, he completely is laying there trusting the fact and knowing that guy would never kill anybody at this point. 
I think that's interesting, right? I think that's the really interesting part. This is this is a story about a guy who will fail the marshmallow test every time and a guy who will pass it. Right? You know, it's like what like for Bruno, it's like I'm always going to take the chance to manipulate and and if I can make myself an excuse to kill somebody, I'm going to do that. That's the character we've we've Highsmith created here. And um I I really enjoy the exploration of it. Very interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting psychological story that um, is also, I think, just plays into exactly what Hitchcock would do so well in just making really fun, um, just kind of like, you know, mystery, murder mystery stories that uh, it's so funny looking at reviews at the time, like so many critics are just like, ah, it's just another one of Hitchcock's things. Like it's, it's like they didn't recognize what was happening with some of these fantastic Hitchcock films. Yeah. Can I can I have a sidebar? Sidebar. Patricia Highsmith. How many adaptations of Patricia Highsmith's works have have you seen? Do you have you seen enough? Do you know enough of them that are Patricia Highsmith adaptations to actually get a sense of what what her work stands for? And I'm that's a leading question because I do know the answer to this. I have seen a good number of them. Let's see. I've seen Strangers on the Train. I've seen Carol, which I think was an adaptation of something of hers. I've seen The Talented Mr. Ripley. I saw... What is the other Ripley story that I watched? Another one of his stories uh, that I've seen. Because she wrote three Ripley books. It was the, the American Friend that I've seen. Uh, Vim Vendor's one. I didn't see the one that had uh, John Malkovich. That was Ripley's game. I didn't see that one. Um, Strangers on a Train. Let's see. Uh, I saw Two Faces of January, which I didn't like. So there was also uh, the German film The Glass Cell. Didn't see that uh, one. Yeah, Two Faces of January. The Cry of the Owl is uh, was a 2009 adaptation of the 1962 book. There was Deep Water, which is a Hulu thing with Ana de Armas, the uh, obviously talented Mr. Ripley, A Kind of Murder, based on The Blunderer, her 1954 book, and uh, The Price of Salt was the Rooney Mara, Kate Blanchett uh, movie that was turned into Carol. Mm. I should say The Price of Salt was the book Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett were not in it. They were actually in Carol, as you mentioned, but The Price of Salt was the book. What do you think overall? I actually found it really interesting that we that we have so many books uh, by uh, Highsmith that have been adapted. They all seem to have these these themes of you know murder and twisty, twisty, naughty lies and she's it's a real sort of high drama soap opera kind of uh, kind of storytelling. Well, definitely a lot of psychological con artist sociopathy that seems to run through them, and certainly I think. Uh, there is this level that she plays with with uh, sexuality, homosexuality, like a lot of those those elements seem to be she seems to have woven into her stories. I've I've never read a Patricia Highsmith novel. So I say all of this only based on the film adaptations <laughs> that I've seen of her work. But that certainly seems to be something that people pull from them that they want to explore in them. Yeah, I think that whole the the whole question of identity is what we get to here and it's the same thing we get in Ripley in the the Ripley stuff, right? Which is this that that it explores the human capacity for manipulation. That is a major theme in in these 
uh, in these uh, books and and the crisscrossing nature of what is you know the question of what is normal and what is quote abnormal um you know how far outside the human experience is no longer you know fluid acceptance uh, and considered morally wrong and i think that makes these things really fun and this is another uh, another interesting series i would be uh, i i know you didn't like the two faces of january but there are enough movies in here that i like or am really curious about that i'd be interested in in figuring out a way to shoehorn these in too Oh, I I would totally do a Patricia Highsmith series. Like, I am so fascinated by her books or her the film adaptations. I kind of would want to give myself a little time before we did it because I'd love to actually read some of them first just to kind yeah. of get a sense as to how, how the adaptations went because I, I certainly find the, the films really fascinating. I think I'm going to Libby these up. Libby them up. Get them going. <laughs> Well, speaking of writing, though, this was a very interesting one because and this, I think, goes to, you know, a a number of different elements. But, you know, we have talked about how fascinating it was that they had an Oscar for a a time of best story, which, again, is really just kind of a, a treatment. Hitchcock hired Whitfield Cook to write the story for this which then he took that treatment to shop around to look for the writer. And so it's interesting to see exactly how they would do this. And so um, so Hitchcock, uh, nobody was interested. A lot of people turned him down, like John Steinbeck, Thornton Wilder, Dashiell Hammett. Uh, they all turned him down. He ended up connecting with Raymond Chandler, who just got an Oscar nomination for Double Indemnity a few years earlier. And... Chandler and he started working together. They did not get to get, get along at all. Uh, very different working styles, and they could not click. And so it took a while, but Chandler did end up writing two drafts of the script. Finally, by the time he was doing the second version and turned it in, he didn't even hear anything from Hitchcock other than a note saying he's dismissed from the project. And so then Hitchcock tried to hire Ben Hecht, but couldn't. Uh, he was busy, and so Hecht... Uh, recommended his assistant, Chenzi Ormond, to write it. She had only, I think, written a, a novel at that point, but had been assisting Ben. She came on to write, and I guess it worked between Hitchcock and her. They got along well. She ended up really clicking with Hitchcock's associate producer, Barbara Kean, and the two of them, with the help of Alma Revel, Hitchcock's wife, uh, really, the three of them are the three who pretty much wrote this script and crafted it. Now, interestingly, and this is probably why the WGA works the way it does these days, they were the three people who largely wrote it. Hitchcock wanted the writing credit to go to Whitfield Cook, who wrote the story, and Chenzi Ormond, who he had hired to write it. Not the other two, because they weren't actually hired to write. They were doing other jobs, but that's, you know, that's how things were. Warner Brothers, on the other hand, thought that it would be more beneficial for them to be able to say Raymond Chandler wrote it, and they would get more of an audience having Raymond Chandler's name showing up in the credits. And so they insisted that his name be credited. And so it's credited to Raymond Chandler and Chenzi Ormond from the story by Whitfield Cook. And it's funny because they say there's hardly a single thing that Chandler had written in this version of it. But that's the way that the system worked. And you can see why the WJA now is so litigious and reviews all the different scripts and and compares them to, you know, okay, who's going to get the credit Uh, because of things like this, where the studio says, oh, no, no, but but Chandler's the one with the name. So we want him on it. Yeah. (laughs) 
that it's uh, it's it's weird and offensive uh, sens- to my sensibilities. <laughs> That's kind of how it works. Though I'm not going to lie to you, it helps. Like Chandler's name means something, right? It 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 means something beyond. Like he has a brand, and I can totally see why a Chandler penned script with next to Hitchcock's name feels like a compelling argument to be made from studio marketeers. Well, obviously it worked. I mean, until doing research on this film, I assumed that he had actually been more of a part of it than he was. And it's only reading up on him like, oh, so I'm actually not watching anything of Chandler's up on the screen. Right. That it's it's such a rug pull when you when you realize the truth of these things. But that's the way the system would work. Like nobody would really know Unless, uh, you know, these stories kind of come out over over time. Like, certainly when the film was released, probably nobody in the theaters uh, realized that Chandler pretty much had nothing to do with the film they were watching. Yeah. Sad. Just crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Very much. What else is on your list? I wanted to uh, just mention the old man who crawls under the merry-go-round toward the end of the film as it's going crazy first of all i just want to say police work in the 50s i mean ridiculous seriously the guy's running away from you so you're just going to shoot him in the back one and two have such bad aim that you actually kill the merry-go-round uh controller whatever you call that the position (laughs) the operator right the operator and also the fact that merry-go-rounds were apparently designed at the time to have like extra (laughs) high speed spinning capabilities and it just goes bonkers which i mean it works we can only make it one speed you see it's just one speed so the speed is controlled by brakes brakes are very important (laughs) in 1950 it's so funny but apparently so this old man this random character who comes up they're like how are we gonna stop this oh i can do it out of nowhere this guy comes up he crawls under the moving merry-go-round to get uh to the middle where he can pop up and grab the controls turn it off that was all real like the whole the rest of the stuff with the merry-go-round was kind of shot with miniatures and and all this sort of stuff but that was something that was done for real and hitchcock later said that was the scariest thing that he had ever done it was it was a real stunt and he said it was this it was the most dangerous stunt that had ever been performed in any of his films and he regrets having done it because he it was like so terrifying that this person was actually going to get hurt from this thing crazy he didn't get hurt right he didn't like, get that's hurt. how the story he didn't ends. get he's hurt. fine Correct. he does make it to the middle but the whole thing is like uh for real he's crawling underneath a fast spinning thing above him which is crazy yeah that was not great but i love his face he has that that rubber circus face like i loved watching him when he's he takes a break in the middle of his crawl to wipe the sweat from his mouth like it <laughs> yeah. was just really awesome yeah that was that was legit terrorizing i think the statement that is interesting about that sequence though is that we have this like fight on the merry-go-round we have the merry-go-round speeding out of control and beyond the mothers of children who are screaming bloody murder it seems like the crowd becomes so much more interested in the spectacle of the carny crawling under the thing than of the actual 
climax of the movie, which is the fight between these two guys on the merry-go-round. And I think that's a really interesting sort of tension that Hitchcock builds. There's so much going on, and it's sort of a character litmus test as to what you find most interesting on screen in this sequence. Are you more interesting in the potential death of a carny, or are you more interesting in the interested in the resolution of the story itself? That that thing I think is is really compelling to me. Like, or are you interested in the children that are being thrown from the merry-go-round hither and yon? It's it is a very fun sequence to watch, and it is very interesting because the way that it is building tension with that merry-go-round and just kind of the insanity of the whole thing. But it's it's done in such an over-the-top way that it's hard to. Uh, just ignore how fun it is, you know, and 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 it's it, building the tension the way it needs to. Is it too over the top for you? No, I I mean it's uh, clearly from today's eyes, maybe the eyes of people in 1951, it's undercranked, so everything is moving slightly faster than it should be, you know. But it, at the same time, it's like the people on. There are some people who are on the merry-go-round who are screaming, but there's also like that little kid who just like joins in the fight and like is is hitting Bruno over the head. And it just like it cracked me up, and so I it, it was hard to be too concerned, but um, but it works well in building the tension that it needed to, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think it's great. I actually I love the I I love the resolution and the final the, you know the final dig the twist of the knife when Bruno holds on to the charade with his dying breath we'll talk about commitment to the bit yeah well and that just speaks to that character and and i i think it speaks large it's it's one of those stories where you kind of have to buy into the fact that that guy right away just doesn't go to the cops it's like well, come on you're probably better off just going to the police and admitting all of this craziness right out of the gate but you can see also how he kind of buys into it because once this crazy person weaves his story again this is a very charismatic character once he tells him you know they're never going to believe you you know we you know you why would i kill your wife i have nothing to do with it other than you telling me to do it and you can see where he comes to a place where he feels he has to go along with all this and it just i think that's why this whole thing ends up working so well and builds to the way that it does at the end and uh, even to the point where the cops are all there thinking they're stopping Guy, and it's only because of the the guy who run the carney who runs the boats, the Tunnel of Love. He's the one who recognizes that. Oh no, it was Bruno who had been here before, which was a great reveal too, because they he made it a believable sort of uh, a believable sort of bait and switch, where it's the the boatman and the cop thought they were looking at the same thing, and I didn't find I didn't question that at all. It felt like a perfectly natural thing for them to be talking about different people looking in the same direction. I thought it was fantastic. I I mentioned one of my what ifs about what if Guy had actually shot the guy in Bruno's dad's bed, and it <laughs> turned out to be Bruno. The other one that I always crack up on is the whole thing with the drain. It's like, what if he can't actually get that lighter out of the drain? It's like, does he just I mean, that pretty much ends his plan. And so those are two things that I always laugh about with this film. Yeah. What would he have done? Find a different lighter? Say it. <laughs> gas. I mean, he's been gaslighting guy the whole time. Right. Exactly. I mean, I I can sort of believe him standing there and the, saying, oh, no, that's your lighter. That's the lighter you, you know, you dropped. I saw that lighter on the train. Exactly. If right. he, it's a movie full of a character who just lies. Yeah. He does it well. 
My last little tidbit, and this is just an interesting side note, Carol Burnett, actually, when she was young, she was actually working at, at a movie theater as an usher, and the theater was showing Strangers on a Train. She had seen the movie. A couple patrons came to watch it. And, you know, it's that era where people just show up to watch movies willy-nilly whenever. And this is why Hitchcock would do his ad, like, for Psycho, saying, don't be late. And you, you're, no one will be allowed in, like creating a whole thing where people came to the theater when movies started, as opposed to as opposed to showing up whenever and just walking in to watch whatever parts of the movie they wanted to watch. Mm-hmm. This was a period and, and she had seen the movie. Some people came in. The movie had only 10 minutes left. And she said, wait until the next showing because it's going to spoil the end for you if you watch it. Her manager saw her do this. Uh, the manager let the couple in and fired her. And so later, once she became a star and she was offered to get her Hollywood, uh, the star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, they asked where she wanted it. And she she picked right in front of that movie theater, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, that is oh, so good. Carol yeah. Burnett is Bruno. <laughs> Long troll. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, I think that's it. So we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Artie Sun, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page. That is a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you to tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies. Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching. All sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool. Sexiest animated characters. Andy, what is this? We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service. Just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well. All right, Andy. Sequels and remakes. How many have I seen that I did not know were referencing this movie? Well, you know, we already talked about a lot of Patricia Highsmith's um, adaptations and everything. This 
uh, story had several radio versions because it's certainly the era for that. Absolutely, you have to mention the fantastic uh, Frank Oz film, Throw Mama from the Train, which I have a strong love for it. I love that film. It just makes me laugh to no end. It's just bonkers. And, you know, I, I don't think it's for everybody, but I sure laugh when I watch that one. There was a 96 TV remake of this called Once You Meet a Stranger. It was a gender, uh, they swapped genders for that particular version of it. And it was Jacqueline Bissett and Teresa Russell who actually were the main characters in that version of the story. When did the murders happen? If they're switching genders, is it still a murder story? Uh, yeah, it still is the same thing. They meet on a train and, and everything. It's just... Uh, oh, it's not like a Freaky Friday gender swapping, like oh, parent no, 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 swap. No. no, they just switch genders in the narrative. Okay, it's women yeah, yeah. Mur- doing the murder. Yeah, two women. One one wants to divorce her husband. Other, one hates her mother. And that whole thing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I get it now. I don't know why I went yeah. to magic. <laughs> I think you started with throw mama from the train. And I, I was totally thrown. Like throw mama from the train. I Apparently. Yeah. Apparently okay. in yeah. Uh, 2015, uh, there was an announcement that David Fincher was going to direct a version of this uh, written by uh, uh, Gillian Flynn. Is it Gillian or Jillian Flynn? Oh, why would you ask me that? I, I think it's Jillian. Uh, I would say Ms. Flynn, who, of course, wrote Gone Girl with Ben Affleck in it, uh, just called Strangers. Apparently, because of all the schedules of the three of them, it went into development hell and nothing has come of it. And that's kind of where that died. But to your point, as far as feeling like this story's out there, if you go to TV Tropes, uh, there is, of course, a trope called the Strangers on a Train Plot Murder. Interestingly, I suppose, obviously, this film and book together are, they have it named the Trope Namer, the Trope Maker, and the Trope Codifier. Wow. Yeah. It's got that, that's a real triumvirate, the Triple Crown. It's the singularity. This is the singularity. Yeah. It is the source of everything related to this particular trope. So, there it is. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. You go, Highsmith Hitchcock. Smith, <laughs> no, I don't want to try a concatenation of that name. We'll never be able to write it in Discord. Okay. How about at uh, at award season? Uh, how did it do at award season? This is, again, why we're here. It is. Uh, it also, I think, speaks to the way that this film was received at the time, very much receiving it as a Hitchcock uh, murder thriller. Like, nobody was really looking at this as an awards film. So it only had three wins with two other nominations. At the Oscars, uh, Robert Burks did get nominated for Best Cinematography, Black and White, but as we talked about last week, lost to A Place in the Sun. Hitchcock was nominated for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Motion Pictures, but lost to George Stevens, also for A Place in the Sun. Uh, This, however, did make it onto the National Board of Review's top 10 for the year, along with A Place in the Sun, A Streetcar Named Desire, An American in Paris, Death of a Salesman, Decision Before Dawn, Detective Story, 14 Hours, Quo Vadis, and The Red Badge of Courage. And, of course, the National Film Preservation Board added it to the National Film Registry in 2021. took a long time to get there, but it did. And in 2017, it was added to the Online Film and TV Association's Hall of Fame. So... There you go. That's it. Okay. Well, that lets us jump to, I think, your favorite and my favorite part of every show, which is, were you able to find anything related to the budget for this movie? 
cow, Pete. I think I may have discovered <laughs> Warner Brothers' answer to Eddie Mannix. Who is it? His name is William Schaefer, and he is responsible for what's called the William Schaefer Ledger. This little bit of magic told me that Warner gave Hitchcock $1.2 million to make this movie, which is almost $18.7 million in today's dollars. The movie opened July 3rd, 1951, and was popular enough to land in the black. Somewhere, the numbers found that it earned $7 million, but that would have put it in the top 10 of the year, and I don't see it on any list in that position. So I think that is some bunk information. From what I found through Schaefer is that it went on to earn almost $1.8 million at the box office, which is almost $21 million in today's dollars. Going off that, the movie ended up with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $154,000. Wow. Check you out. Do we, is there a backstory? Do I sense a very special episode coming up that documents the finding, the losing, and then the finding of the William Schaefer ledger? I would love to say yes, but unfortunately not. I'd love to have a story between like the William Schaefer and Eddie Mannix, uh, like the battle yeah. between them to to who's going to do the better uh, financial tracking, right? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, I love this movie. I'm glad you found some numbers. And uh, man, I'm glad we have this on the list. Now all I want to do is talk about Hitchcock movies. So we're going to have to to reckon with that at some point. So many more to talk about. Absolutely. I love it too. So uh, that's it for this episode. We'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, closing out the series, Elliot Kazan's A Streetcar Named Desire. in history has ever made such impact in a single role as Marlon Brando in Tennessee Williams Pulitzer Prize play and Academy Award motion picture A Streetcar Named Desire Who do you think you are, Fair Queens? I just remember what Huey Long said that every man's a king and I'm the king around here and don't you forget it Fighting Lusting, loving, never for a moment less than completely alive. A man who had two women living in his house, reacting to his savage appeal. But talking about his desire, just brutal desire. Vivian Lee in her Academy Award winning role as Blanche. Kim Hunter in her Academy Award winning role as Stella. Believe me, baby. <laughs> a story ripped from the fabric of life, as earthy and violent as its unforgettable star. Hmm. All right, let's have a little fast. You know what I got the other day, Pete? 
Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Uh, Season 13 is a fun one, looking at various awards categories over the decades, from Best Picture nominees to cinematography. Adapted screenplays to visual effects. And a good number of movies we're discussing started out as books or plays that you can read now on Audible. 1940 Academy Awards Best Picture nominees of Mice and Men and Wuthering Heights. What a great way to start this season. In other series, we also covered The Killers, based on Hemingway's short story. A Place in the Sun, Strangers on a Train, A Streetcar Named Desire. Beckett, A Boy and His Dog, The Princess Bride, Congo. The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Woman in Black. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Letterbox, Andy. Uh, this is the part where you take stars from other movies and you put them on this movie, robbing them from future generations of movie lovers. What do you want to do with your Letterbox review of this movie? This is a very easy one for me. It's just always been one of my favorite Hitchcocks, and it gets uh, just better and better with age. I have such a great time with it. Easy five-star film, and uh, certainly in my top five Hitchcocks. It's just uh, so much, so much fun to watch. Do you want to tell us what your top five Hitchcocks are? I would, yes. Uh, North by Northwest, Psycho, Vertigo, Rear Window at this. Wow, that was fast. I think in that order, but they can... Well, I'm looking at my letterboxed list of them. Oh. So... (laughs) I was going to say, okay, now it's number seven and make it a game, but you're cheating. You're already cheating. Yes, that's what lists are for. <laughs> I'm right with you. I am absolutely a five-star in heart on this movie, which makes this an entire boring conversation because we love the movie too much. No controversy. <laughs> Lighters and drains for the win. Well, the controversy would be if you gave it six stars because you're stealing so many stars from other places. <laughs> from the Meg 2. That's where it comes from. <laughs> well, deservedly so. I got lots of stars to spare after watching that yeah, movie. right, right. Well, remember, you can find me over at Letterboxd at Soda Creek Film and Pete at Pete Wright. So find us over there. What did you think about Strangers on a Train? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
Letterbox, give us Andrew. As Letterbox always do it. I might have a double hitter. Oh. Double hitter? Is that a thing? I think it's a double header. Double header. Sometimes things come out of my mouth. All right. Enough out of me. I have reviews. Why don't you go first? Because it sounds like you're serious. Uh, It's not that serious, but I've got a a one star by, it's just the birthday cake emoji, is (laughs) this particular person. Mm -hmm. I thought this was going to be a train mystery. My fault. Then it was also just bad. Not my fault. <laughs> oh, ouch. Yeah. Um, I've got a, a three star from Sarah who says me. Hi, how are you? Any Hitchcock character. Hey, let me tell you how I would play in the perfect murder. I love murder. I'm so random. <laughs> and then the follow up five star from Sydney who says, hey, fellas, is it gay to murder the wife of the man you just met on a train? <laughs> <laughs> Those reviews slay. That's all so I'm good. saying. So good. Thanks, Letterboxd.